Chapter Twenty One of Ravenstein Court by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Chinese Gentleman. I could not repress an unconscious involuntary start on hearing this remarkable declaration. It seemed to open, as widely as suddenly, an entirely new field of vision. It was as if some hand had abruptly torn aside a veil and shown me something that I had never dreamed of. And Baxter laughed significantly. "'That strikes you, Middlebrook,' he said. "'Very forcibly, indeed,' said I. "'If what you say is true, I mean, if one of those two men had such valuables on him, then there's a reason for the murder of both that none of us knew. But is it probable that the Quicks would still be in possession of jewels that you saw some years ago?' "'Not so many years ago, when all's said and done,' he answered. "'And you couldn't dispose of things like those very readily, you know. "'You can take it from me, knowing what I did of them, "'that neither Noah nor Salter Quick would sell anything "'unless at its full value, or something like it. "'They weren't hard up for money, either of them. "'They could afford to wait, in the matter of a sale of anything, "'until they found somebody who would give their price.' "'You say these things, rubies, I think?' were worth a lot of money i asked heaps of money he affirmed do you know anything about rubies not much well the ruby i dare say you do know is the most precious of precious stones the real true ruby the oriental one is found in greatest quantity in burma and siam and the best are those that come from mogok which is a district lying northward of mandalay these rubies that the quicks had came from there they were remarkably fine ones, and I know how and where those precious villains got them. Yes, I said, feeling that another dark story lay behind this declaration. Not honestly, I suppose. Far from it, he replied with a grim smile. Those two rubies formed the eyes of some ugly god or other in a heathen temple in Guangdong province of southern China, where the quicks carried on more nefarious practices than that. They gouged them out, according to their own story. Then, of course, they cleared off. You saw the rubies, I asked. More than once, on that island in the Yellow Sea, he answered. Noah and Salter would have bartered either or both for a ship at one period. But, he added with a sneering laugh, you may lay your life that when they boarded that Chinese fishing boat, on which they made their escape, they'd pay for their passage as meanly as possible. No, my belief is that they still had those rubies on them when they turned up in England again, and that, as likely as not, they were murdered for them. Take all the circumstances of the murder into consideration. In each case the dead man's clothing was ripped to pieces, the linings examined, even the padding of the chest and shoulder torn out and scattered about. What were the murderers seeking for? Not for money. As far as I remember, each man had a good deal of money on him, and not a penny was touched. What was it, then? My own belief is that after Salter Quick joined Noah at Devonport, both brothers were steadily watched by men who knew what they had on them, and that when Salter came north he was followed just as Noah was tracked down at Saltash and I should say that whoever murdered them got the rubies. They may have been on Noah, they may have been on Salter. One may have been in Salter's possession, one in Noah's. But there, in the rubies, lies, in my belief, 
the secret of these murders. I felt that here, in this lonely cove, we were probably much nearer the solution of the mystery that had baffled Scarterfield, ourselves, the police, and everybody that we knew. And so, apparently, did Miss Raven, who suddenly turned on Baxter with a look that was half an appeal. "'Mr. Baxter,' she said, colouring a little at her own temerity, "'why don't you follow Mr. Middlebrook's advice? Give up the old silver and the rest of it to the authorities, and help them to track down those murderers.' wouldn't that be better than whatever it is you're doing but baxter laughed flung away his cigar and rose to his feet a deal better from many standpoints my dear young lady he exclaimed but too late for netherfield baxter he's an ishmael a pirate a highwayman and it's too late for him to do anything but gang his own gate no i'm not going to help the police not i I've enough to do to keep out of their way. You'll get caught, you know, I said, as good-humouredly as possible. You'll never get this stuff that's upstairs across the Atlantic and into New York or Boston or any Yankee port without detection. As you were treating us well, your secret's safe enough with us. But think, man, of the difficulties of taking your loot across an ocean, to say nothing of customs officers on the other side. "'I never said we were going to take it across the Atlantic,' he answered coolly, and with another of his cynical laughs. "'I said we were going to sail this bit of a craft across there. So we are. But when we strike New York, or New Orleans, or Pernambuco, or Buenos Aires, Middlebrook, the stuff won't be there. The stuff, my lad, won't leave British waters. Deep, deep is your queer acquaintance, Netherfield Baxter,' and if he does run risks now and then, he always provides for them. "'Evidently you intend to transship your precious cargo,' I suggested. "'The door of its market is yawning for it, Middlebrook, and not far away,' he answered. "'If this craft drops in at Aberdeen, or at Thurso, or at Moville, and the customs folks, or any other such-like hawks and kites, come aboard,' they'll find nothing but three innocent gentlemen and their servants a-yachting it across the free seas verbum sapienti middlebrook as we said in my latin days far off now but wouldn't miss raven like to retire it's late i'll send chu with hot water if you want anything middlebrook command him as for me i shan't see you again to-night i must keep a watch for my pal coming aboard from his little mission ashore then with curt politeness he bade us both good-night and went off on deck and we two captives looked at each other strange man murmured miss raven she gave me a direct glance that had a lot of meaning in it mr middlebrook she went on in a still lower voice let me tell you that i'm not afraid i'm sure that man means no personal harm to us but is there anything you want to say to me before i go only this i answered do you sleep very soundly not so soundly that i shouldn't hear if you called me she replied i'm going to mount guard here i said i too believe in what baxter says but if i should for any reason have occasion to call you during the night do at once precisely what i tell you to do of course she said the chinaman who had been in evidence at intervals since our arrival 
came into the little saloon with a can of hot water and disappeared into the inner cabin which had been given up to miss raven she softly said good-night to me with the reassurance of her confidence that all would be well and followed him i heard her talking to this strange makeshift for a maid for a moment or two then the man came out grinning as if well pleased with himself and she closed and fastened the door on him the chinaman turned to me asking in a soft voice if there was anything i pleased to need nothing but the rugs and pillows that your master spoke of i answered he opened a locker on the floor of the place and producing a number of cushions and blankets from it made me up a very tolerable couch then with a polite bow he too departed and i was left alone of one thing i was firmly determined i was not going to allow myself to sleep i firmly believed in baxter's good intentions in spite of his record strange and shady by his own admission there was something in him that won confidence he was unprincipled without doubt and the sort of man who would be all the worse if resisted being evidently naturally wayward headstrong and foolishly obstinate but like all bad men he had good points and one of his seemed to be a certain pride in showing people like ourselves that he could behave himself like a gentleman that pride a species of vanity of course would i felt sure make him keep his word to us and especially to miss raven but he was only one amongst a crowd for anything i knew his french friend might be as consummate a villain as ever walked and the chinese in the galley cut-throats of the best quality and there behind a mere partition was a helpless girl and i was unarmed it was a highly serious and unpleasant situation at the best of it and the only thing i could do was to keep awake and remain on the alert until morning came i took off coat and waistcoat folded a blanket shawl-wise around my shoulders wrapped another round my legs and made myself fairly comfortable in the cushions which the chinaman had deftly arranged in an angle of the cabin i had directed him to settle my night's quarters in a corner close to miss raven's door and immediately facing the half-dozen steps which led upwards to the deck at the head of those steps was a door i had bade him leave it open so that i might have plenty of air when he had gone i had extinguished the lamp which swung from the roof and now half sitting half lying amongst my cushions and rugs i faced the patch of sky framed in that open doorway and saw that the night was a clear one and that the heavens were full of glittering stars i had just refilled and lighted my pipe before settling down to my vigils and for a long time i lay there smoking and thinking my thoughts were somewhat confused confused at any rate to the extent that they ranged over a variety of subjects our apprehension that afternoon the queer almost if not wholly eccentric character of netherfield baxter his strange story of the events in the yellow sea his frank avowal of his share of the theft of the monastic spoils his theory about noah and salter quick and other matters arising out of these things the whirl of it all in my anxious brain made me more than once feel disposed to sleep i realized that in spite of everything i should sleep unless i kept up a stern determination to remain awake 
everything on board that strange craft was as still as the skies above her decks i heard no sound whatever save a very gentle lapping of the water against the vessel's timbers and occasionally the far-off hooting of owls in the woods that overhung the cove these sounds of course were provocative of slumber i had to keep smoking to prevent myself from dropping into a doze and perhaps two hours may have gone in this fashion and it was i should think a little after midnight when i heard at first far away towards the land and then gradually coming nearer the light slow plashing of oars that gently and leisurely rose and fell this of course was the frenchman coming back from his mission to berwick he would i knew have gone there from the little wayside station that lay beyond the woods at the back of the cove and have returned by a late train to the same place somehow i could not well account for it the mere fact of his coming back made me nervous and uneasy i was not so certain about his innocence in the matter of salter quick's murder on baxter's own showing the frenchman had been hanging around that coast for some little time just when salter quick descended upon it he like baxter if baxter's story were true was aware that one or other of the quicks carried those valuable rubies even if the york episode being taken for granted he had not killed salter quick himself he might be privy to the doings of some accomplice who had anyway he was a doubtful quantity and the mere fact that he was back again on that yawl made me more resolved than ever to keep awake and preserve a sharp lookout. i heard the boat come alongside i heard steps on the deck just outside my open door then baxter's voice presently too i heard other voices one that of the frenchman which i recognized from having heard him speak in the afternoon the other a soft gentle laughing voice without doubt that of an eastern this of course would be the chinese gentleman of whom i had heard the man who had been seen in company with baxter and the frenchman at hull so now the three principal actors in this affair were all gathered together separated from me and miss raven by a few planks and close by were three chinese of whose qualities i knew nothing safe we might be but we were certainly on the very edge of a hornet's nest i heard the three men talking together in low subdued tones for a few minutes then they went along the deck above me and the sound of their steps ceased but as i lay there in the darkness two round discs of light suddenly appeared on the mirror which hung on the boarding of the cabin immediately facing me and turning my head sharply i saw that in the bulkhead behind me there were two similar holes pierced in what was probably a door which would no doubt be sunk flush with the boarding and was possibly the entrance to some other cabin that could be entered from a further part of the deck behind that under a newly lighted lamp the three men were now certainly gathered i was desperately anxious to know what they were doing anxious of course to the point of nervousness to know what they looked like taken in bulk i could hear them talking in there still in very low tones and i would have given much to hear even a few words of their conversation and after a time of miserable indecision for i was afraid of doing anything that would lead to suspicion or resentment on their part 
and I was by no means sure that I might not be under observation of one of those silky-footed Chinese from the galley. I determined to look through the holes in the door and see whatever was to be seen. I got out of my wrappings in my corner so noiselessly that I don't believe anyone actually present in my cabin would have heard even a rustle, and tiptoeing in my stockinged feet across to the bulkhead which separated me from the three men put an eye to one of the holes. To my great joy I then found that I could see into the place to which Baxter and his companions had retreated. It was a sort of cabin, rougher in accommodation than that in which I stood, fitted with bunks on three sides, and furnished with a table in the centre over which swung a lamp. The three men stood round this table, examining some papers. The lamplight fell full on all three. Baxter stood there in his shirt and trousers. The Frenchman also was half-dressed, as if preparing for rest. But the third man was still as he had come aboard, a little yellow-faced, dapper, sleek Chinaman, whose smart, velvet-collared overcoat, thrown open, revealed an equally smart, dark tweed suit beneath it, and an elegant gold watch-chain festooned across the waistcoat. He was smoking a cigar just lighted, that it was of a fine brand I could tell by the aroma that floated to me, and on the table before the three stood a whisky bottle, a siphon of mineral water, and glasses, which had evidently just been filled. Baxter and the Frenchman stood elbow to elbow. The Frenchman held in his hands a number of sheets of paper, foolscap size, to the contents of which he was obviously drawing Baxter's attention. Presently they turned to a desk which stood in one corner of the place, and Baxter, lifting its lid, produced a big ledger-like book over which they bent, evidently comparing certain entries in it with the papers in the Frenchman's hand. What book or papers might be, I of course knew nothing, for all this was done in silence. But had I known anything, or heard anything, it would have seemed of no significance compared with what I just then saw a thing that suddenly turned me almost sick with a nameless fear and set me trembling from toe to finger. The dapper and smug Chinaman, statuesque on one side of the table, immovable save for an occasional puff of his cigar, suddenly shot into silent activity as the two men turned their backs on him and bent, apparently absorbed, over the desk in the corner. Like a flash, it reminded me of the lightning-like movement of a viper. His long, thin fingers went into a waistcoat pocket, like a flash emerged, shot to the glasses on the table, and into two of them dropped something small and white, some tabloid or pellet that sank and dissolved as rapidly as it was put in. It was all over, all done, within literally the fraction of a second, when, a moment or two later, Baxter and the Frenchman turned round again, after throwing the ledger-like book and the papers into the desk, their companion was placidly smoking his cigar and sipping the contents of his glass between the whiffs. I was by that time desperately careless as to whether I might or might not be under observation from the open door and the stairway of my own cabin. I remained where I was, my eye glued to that ventilation hole watching. 
for it seemed to me that the Chinaman was purposely drugging his companions for some insidious purpose of his own. In that case, what of the personal safety of Miss Raven and myself? For one moment I was half-minded to rush round to the other cabin and tell Baxter of what I had just seen, but I reflected that I might possibly bring about there and then an affair of bloodshed and perhaps murder, in which there would be four Chinese against three others, one of whom, my miserable self, was not only unarmed, but like enough to be useless in a scene of violence. No, the only thing was to wait, and wait I did, with a thumping heart and a tingling nerves watching. Nothing happened. Baxter gulped down his drink in a single draught. The French took his in two leisurely swallows. Each flung himself on his bunk, pulled his blankets about him, and as far as I could see seemed to fall asleep instantly. But the Chinaman was more deliberate and punctilious. He took his time over his cigar and his whiskey. He pulled out a suitcase from some nook or other and produced from it a truly gorgeous sleeping suit of gaily striped silk. It occupied him quite twenty minutes to get undressed and into this grandeur, and even then he lingered, fiddling about and carefully folding and arranging his garment. In the course of this, and in moving about the narrow cabin, he took apparently casual glances at Baxter and the Frenchman, and I saw from his satisfied, quiet smirk that each was sound and fast asleep. And then he thrust his feet into a pair of bedroom slippers, as loud in their colourings as his pyjamas, and suddenly turning down the lamp with a twist of his wicked-looking fingers, he glided out of the door into the darkness above it. At that I, too, glided swiftly back to my blankets. End of chapter 21